Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Hey, it's great to see you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. Uh, but that passage that we just read this morning from 1 Corinthians uh, is really important in this series. And while we won't be talking about the gifts of the Spirit in the series, uh, there's a reason for that. We just did three days here in our church on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night this past week, really dialing in and focusing in on that very topic. And so if you missed out on our J-term classes this week, I'm sorry that you had to miss that, uh, but we did record those things, and you can go back and catch them if you want to. Uh, you should be able to find that on our YouTube page or on our app and uh, get a hold of those resources. There's also something on Right Now Media, which everybody in our church has access to. If you do not have Right Now Media, let us know, and we will make sure you get access to that. It's free. Uh, that We pay for that as a church that you can have. Uh, but there is a, a teaching on there by a guy named Chip Ingram, who's out in California, and uh, he has this teaching called Your Divine Design, and he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the way to live in relationship with the Holy Spirit and to understand the ways that we have been gifted. So if you missed out on that conversation, I would encourage you to check those things out and go back and do some studying on your own as we do that. Uh, well, last week, if you were here with us, we are talking about this relationship with the Holy Spirit that we have. And the, the Holy Spirit tends to be uh, an aspect of the Christian life that's really misunderstood, uh, that people don't really understand how to walk in relationship with Him. And so we've been saying through this series that we don't want to just know more knowledge about the Holy Spirit, but we want to learn how to have a relationship with Him, how to be in partnership with Him. And so today we're going to be picking up where we ended up last week, which is that we understand that there are two natures or two realms that we live within. There's the realm of the flesh, which Paul talks about as being our carnal nature, our sinful nature, the things that we do often, uh, and we're naturally drawn to those things because we're born into sin. But then when Christ comes into our lives, when we have a relationship with Jesus and we meet him and we receive his grace into our lives, we're moved into the realm of the Spirit. And so Paul will talk about the Spirit and say that the Spirit of God helps us to overcome our sinful nature and to walk in the freedom and the obedience and the peace that comes in knowing Jesus. And so last we really talked about those two separate places, the realm of the flesh, the realm of the Spirit. And today we're going to pick right back up in that same conversation as we carry on in Romans chapter 8. So when you get to Romans chapter 8 verse 12, Paul uses this connector word because he's going to refer back to everything that was taking place in the first 11 verses. And he says, therefore, because all of these things that were true in the first 11 verses, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 
And so as Paul writes this, the first thing that he communicates uh, about this is that we have this new obligation. When we come into faith in Christ, he changes some things. And I love this passage and how he equates all of this because when we really look at it, we understand that we are people who should be punished because of sin. And yet because of the sacrifice of Jesus uh, on the cross, we are given freedom outside of sinfulness and into his kingdom. And so when we think about that, we go, man, Jesus has made a way. And Paul even says in the first verse of chapter 8, he goes, listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And because God doesn't condemn us in our sins, Jesus paid for our sins. We no longer have to pay the punishment and the penalty of sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus. There's no condemnation. And so when we think about God not being a God of wrath and hatred and judgment, but a God of grace and a God of freedom and mercy. And so Paul says, because those things are true, therefore, if you receive Christ, there is now an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature, it's to the spirit of God. And so when you read about that and you think about it, when I hear that word, some different things come into my mind and maybe it does for you as well. When that term obligation comes up, you go, man, I can think about some things that I am obligated to do in my life, right? Like I'm obligated to pay my bills, if I take on a credit card, uh, and then I'm obligated to pay that, or some bad things could happen. If I sign up for cable, I'm obligated to pay for that, or they'll cut my cable. If I get a cell phone and a cell phone plan, I'm obligated to pay that, or they are not obligated to continue offering me service, right? Like there are things that we do where we say, I'm obligated to this. If you have a job, you're obligated to work, right? Your employer is saying, hey, I pay for you to work, therefore you are obligated to work. And if you don't work, I can terminate your employment. I cannot pay you. Like, you can't just sit at home and watch Netflix all day, right? Like, it has to be something where you're saying, I am obligated to this new employer, this person who is giving me money for the jobs that I do. And so I'm obligated to that. Or maybe you think about it in the relationship with your spouse, And you go, hey, when I stepped into this covenant relationship, I said yes to you, and I said no to everyone else on planet Earth. And my obligation is to you and to you alone as my spouse. So when I stood and took vows and I said, uh, forsaking all others, I cling to you. There's obligation now. Before I was married to you, I could date anybody I wanted to. I could be around anybody I wanted to. Now I have an obligation And it's to you as my spouse, right? And so when we break that vow, there's all manner of issues that come into play that harm us and do damage. And so Paul says the same thing. Now when you step into relationship with Christ, you are no longer obligated to the sinful nature, to the things that your body wants to do or your mind entices you to do or you're tempted to do by sinful outside forces. He goes, you're not obligated to that anymore. You can say no to those things in order to say yes to Christ. This is where your obligation lies. You have the opportunity to walk into a new kingdom and into a new relationship. And so Paul's painting that picture for us. And if you're taking notes this morning, I want you just to get this as the very first thing. The Holy Spirit empowers us to fight sin and he reminds us we are not obligated to our sinful desires. What you were once obligated to do, you no longer have to do. And yet... We're in this constant tension and pull, right, of going, I know I'm not obligated to sin, but man, sometimes sin feels really good. And sometimes I choose sin even if I know I'm not obligated to it. Even if I know Christ has called me away from sin, there are still things that I do. And Paul wrestled with that same thing. In fact, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 7. Paul said, hey, the things that I, I find myself not wanting to do in this sinful flesh, more often than not than I want to admit, I find myself doing those things. 
And the stuff that I want to do to please and honor God, a lot of times I don't do those things. I should and I want to, but that's not where I find myself operating. And so there's this constant tension between our sinful flesh and our spirit life. And Paul's going, I want to help you understand what a relationship with the Holy Spirit does in your life that empowers you to say no more often to sin and to say yes much more often to God and his ways. And so that's really what he's talking about. When you see this played out, you can find more about this in Titus chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, Titus writes this. Titus was a disciple of Paul, and so he's learned from Paul, and now he writes this and says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. Right, and I love this passage because some of the things that we see in here, one of the amazing things we get in this relationship with the Holy Spirit is the ability to say no to sin. That he will instruct us and go, hey, this is sinful and you need to say no to that, right? And what I love about it is when you read this, he says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That the Spirit of God acts as a teacher to us. And I don't know about you, I was not a great student. I had some things that I excelled in and I had other things, math and science, that I did not excel in so much, right? I'm more of a words person. I liked English. I liked history. When it came to math and science, I was like, nope, letters in calculations don't make sense to me. I don't get it. I don't know what we're doing here. Why are we doing that? Letters make sense in words. And so let's be focused on the words. And so that was more of my bent. But I had teachers that were really gracious with me when I struggled in a subject, especially math. I had teachers that would sit down with me and they would teach me And then when I still didn't get it, they would say, okay, well, come earlier in the morning or stay after school, and I'll teach you again, and I'll teach you again, and I'll teach you again until you get it. And I had some teachers that were just really calm and patient with me, and that's what the Holy Spirit is like. Because we do still have this sinful nature. We do still step into the realm of the flesh more often than we probably would like to admit. And instead of God being in heaven, and some of you have this idea that he's just waiting to judge you, waiting to condemn you, can't wait to throw lightning bolts at you because you messed up. And instead, God is not doing that. He sends his spirit into the world that says, hey, you're stepping into this realm that you don't belong in. Let me pick you up and move you back over here and teach you again how to say no to that so you can say yes to him. Let me instruct you again. Let me whisper again into your mind, into your heart, into your soul, the ways of God that look so different than the ways of man. And the Spirit of God acts as a teacher to us. And he instructs us. And he's patient with us to help move us out of this carnal mindset and into a spiritual mindset. That's his desire. That's his heart. And so when he does that, he teaches us to say no to sin, but he does so in relationship with us. Like, I love this idea that the Holy Spirit of God doesn't just put a force field around us that's a sin blocker and go, all right, now that you have Jesus in your heart, sin will never affect you again. It'll just bounce off and they can shoot sin at you if they want to, but it's not going to penetrate in. It's just going to 
bounce right off of you. That's not what he does. He says, the Spirit of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. He goes, there's a partnership that you have with the Holy Spirit. He's not just going to do all the work for, for, uh, for you and keep all the sin out of your life. He goes, I'm going to instruct you and teach you, and I'm going to help you know what's wrong and know the ways of God, but you're going to live in partnership with me, and there's going to have to be some self-control that you demonstrate in order to say no to sin and to say yes to the ways of God. Does that make sense? That we're going, this is not just about God supernaturally keeping you out of sin. He's going, you have to learn to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life under my tutelage. I'll teach you. I'll instruct you. And I will graciously and patiently do that again and again and again so that you can stay in the realm of the Spirit and not gratify your sinful human desires. So that's one of the things that we have in relationship with the Holy Spirit. So when we're tempted to lust, God's Spirit strengthens us to say, I will not give my eyes over to sinful lust. When we're envious, the Holy Spirit teaches us to say, I do not have to, be, uh, to crave and be jealous of what others have. When we're tempted to gossip, the Holy Spirit whispers to us, don't drag their name and their reputation through the mud. When we want to lie to protect ourselves, the Holy Spirit reminds us that freedom is found in truthfulness. Right? Anytime we have these sinful desires, these things that entice us to go against the ways of God, the Holy Spirit enters into our life and stays in our life to teach us and instruct us in the ways of God so that we might avoid those things. But whatever sin you're prone to in the flesh, the Spirit says, listen, I can help you put that to death so you can enjoy the freedom of Christ. You're not obligated to the sinful life. You're obligated to your Savior. And so as we think about that, when Jesus saved us, he gave us the ability to leave the life of sin and death and to turn from sin so that we can turn toward something else, right? When, anytime you turn away from one thing, you're turning toward something else. So when we turn away from sin, we turn to Christ. And he fills us and he gives us hope. And so here's the next blank on your outline if you're following along. We're obligated to God and to the life he made available to us through his son, Jesus, Right, there's this new obligation. It changes us. And when we go back and look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, we find what the Spirit of God does to empower us in this salvation. It says this, the Holy Spirit gives us a place of belonging in God's family. So when you come into relationship with Christ, he gives you a new place, not just a new obligation, but a place to fulfill. And he calls it his family. He says, you're invited in to be my child. Verses 14 through 17, in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit who you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Right, and so here's the next thing that I want you to see. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Slavery invites fear, but adoption invites belonging. And so he says, listen, I want you to understand when God brings you into his family, he doesn't bring you into his kingdom to make you a slave to him, that he's just going to put you to work and make you do tasks and he's going to overlord you. He goes, he doesn't bring you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light to just make you a slave in a different environment. 
That's not what it's about at all. When I think about slavery, I think about being afraid. I think about being given over. I think about not having control of myself and being obligated and duty-bound to someone else who's going to, to do bad things if I don't respond the way that he wants to. But God's not like that. He says, I'm not making you a slave again. I'm bringing you into my family to be a son, a daughter. I'm giving you a place to belong with me. And so when we think about that, I've had the, the privilege uh, multiple times of being in a courtroom setting where there's been an adoption that's taken place. And the beautiful thing about that is that a judge will look at a parent who's adopting a child and say, from this moment on, because of this adoption, it is as if this child were born to you biologically. They have the full rights of child in your family. And then the judge will turn to the child and say, because of this adoption, because of this formal event, and because of this judgment, today it is as if you were born to these parents and you have all the rights of a biological child. There's this change of environment that you're given into something new, not to be a slave, but to be a son, to be a daughter, to be changed. And then Paul says, here's a beautiful picture about all of this. When God invites you into that environment, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in your life is teaches you how to talk to him. And it says you have the ability to call him Abba, Father, right? Now, Jesus is one of the first people who does this. And then Paul's going to carry that on in his conversation. But when Jesus would teach them to pray, he would uh, talk about God as Father. And it was this intimate expression. Abba, sometimes we translate and talk about it as Daddy, Like it's calling the Father God, the creator of the universe, your dad. And going, hey, I want to have a relationship with you, dad. Like I want to know you. I want to be changed by you. And that wasn't something that people in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul did. They revered God so much that they would barely speak his name. And so to call him daddy was completely unusual. Like that nobody talked to him like that. In fact, the scribes who would write the Torah and would translate or copy the Torah into, uh, from the old um, documents to a new one, was they would translate it or write it out. When they would get to the word God and they would write Yahweh or Elohim or uh, uh, one of the names of God in Scripture, they would throw the pen away. And they go, we can't even use that pen anymore. It is written the name of God. It is now set apart for something else. We don't use that. Uh, Then there was another group of people called the Essenes. The Essenes were people who uh, had this reverence for God so much that they decided they were going to just kind of exit life uh, in the community and go be their own thing and kind of go separate themselves from everybody else. And they were just going to be dedicated to the word of God, the teaching of God, and the principles of God, living it out. And so one of the things that the Essenes did was they also copied scrolls. They copied the words of God. Uh, In fact, Uh, If you go with us next year to Israel, we're going to go to the Dead Sea, and uh, there are caves all around the Dead Sea. In AD 70, when Rome was attacking Jerusalem, was conquering Jerusalem, the Essenes had taken all of these writings, the Torah scrolls that they had copied and written, and they put them in uh, in, um, I'm losing the word jars. There we go. uh, In jars, sorry, uh, put them in jars, and they would bury them in caves. They would hide them in caves so that the Romans wouldn't come and destroy everything. And in the 1940s, there was a little shepherd boy who was tending his sheep out in the desert, and he was throwing rocks then into these caves. And when he threw a rock, he heard something shatter. And there was a stone jar that he went, and he found in this cave all these jars. And when they opened them up, they found the scrolls that had been written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier by the Essenes. 
We call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may have heard of that. Uh, and here's one of the cool things that happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were able to take and go, man, these are much, much, much older documents than anything we have of Scripture. Right? You guys understand we do not have the original documents. We have copies and copies of copies and those kinds of things. So when we think about the Word of God, one of the things that people say all the time is, oh, well, it's been messed up over time and it's been uh, just taken advantage and people have changed it and it doesn't say the same thing now that it said then and the original uh, documents and those kind of things. Well, here's what we found. When we went back and we started looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were 800 years earlier than anything we had, when we compared what we have to the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what? Match. Over 98% exact match of the Dead Sea Scrolls in our copy of Scripture. And so people were able to go, this has not been changed. It's not been messed up. It's been preserved. It's been copied accurately over time, right? But the Essenes, when they would get to a place where they were going to write the name of God, they would write that, they would throw the pen away like the scribes, but then they would go to a place called a mikvah, which was basically a baptismal pool, and they would go in and they would go into a ceremonial baptism to cleanse themselves before they would come back out and start working on copying the scroll again. And every time they got to the word God, they would put the pen away and throw it away and go take those cleansing ceremonial bath to come back and write the names again or to write the Torah again. Right? And so this was how they approached the word God. So when Jesus goes and when Paul says, when you talk to God, you can call him Father. Well, that's much, much different than anybody understood. Our relationship with God is the one that makes us available to come to him like children. And so if we're going to be children, then we get to have this incredible opportunity to also be heirs. And when Paul says this, he goes, listen, I want you to understand, you're not just a child of God, you are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. Now, what does it mean to be an heir of someone? Well, everything that they have belongs to you, right? And maybe you've been the beneficiary of someone who's left you in a will, they've left their uh, possessions to you, maybe a parent or a grandparent, and they passed away and they left you money or a house or a car or something like that. And all the things that belong to them are now passed down to you. You inherit what was given or what came from them, and it now belongs to you. And so God says, listen, I want you to know that everything that's mine is yours. And then he talks to us about not just being his child, but being co-heirs with Christ, that God puts us on equal footing and says, I see you as my child the same way that I see Jesus, my son. Now, that doesn't mean that you're divine. It doesn't mean that you become a, a God of your own. He just says, when I think about you, the same way that I think about my son, Jesus, I think about you. And that's so powerful. Because how many times do I have this imaginary idea of God in my mind that God is, is angry at me? or frustrated with me, or disappointed at me because of my sin, because of the things that I've stumbled into. But can you imagine God being frustrated at Jesus, or disappointed with Jesus, or angry with Jesus? No. And so because of Jesus' death on the cross, when he died, he poured out his blood for us, and it becomes a propitiation, a salvation method for us, but he covers us in his blood. So when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees the blood of his son. He sees Jesus in us. And since there's no frustration, anger, disappointment at Jesus, there's no anger, frustration, disappointment with you. 
because you've been given everything that Jesus has. You're an heir of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. Everything that belongs to them belongs to you. You've inherited that. They've imputed it to you. Right? And so when we think about these things, we see the power of God at work in us, and the Holy Spirit brings all of this to play in our lives. So here's the next thing if you're following along on our outline. We're obligated to God not because he, uh, excuse me, we're obligated to God because he purchased us, not to make us slaves, but to make us sons and daughters. And so here's what we find in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 17, 19, and 20. Paul writes and says, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, right? So what's that price that purchased us? The thing that gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. What is that? It's Jesus' death on the cross. When Jesus gave up his life to come into our lives, he says, you are now no longer doomed in your sin, but you are given life in Christ, and I'm going to put my life over the top of you. I have purchased you, but not to make you a slave, but to make you a son, and to have this relationship with you that has changed everything, that there's this transaction, and now you're no longer obligated to the sinful nature, but you're obligated to me. I've purchased you away from Satan and from sin. I've brought you into a new kingdom. So to help me think about that, uh, I was thinking about some of my days in college of going, man, this obligation that I have uh, of being purchased from one thing to the next or, or being given a new opportunity because I've been uh, given something in, in return for uh, from who I am, right? And so I thought about, uh, I had two things that I really did a lot in college. I played basketball and, uh, and I was in choir. And so I did both of those things. I was on the basketball team in my college and I had this choir thing that I was a part of. And so uh, most of the time, those two things never really interacted with each other or never really caused any conflict with each other. Choir was something that we would do as a class during the day. Basketball was something we did later in the afternoon or in the evenings. And so those two things rarely or, or never had impact uh, until the first year that we came to the Christmas season. And what I found was is that we had Christmas concerts. And so I was like, man, I have a Christmas concert at the same time that I'm supposed to be at a basketball practice. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone to a coach before and said, coach, I can't come to practice. I have choir. Uh, they don't care. They, some of them have been like, what's choir? What, what are you even talking about? Like, uh, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Like, that's a crazy thing. Why would you do that? Practice is at this time. You're going to be here. I'm, you know, like practice, right? And so I had to go to my coach and be like, coach, I, I, I can't. I got this thing. And, and I really wrestled with it of going, should I miss the choir thing to go to practice? Do I miss practice to do the choir thing? But then it really became clear to me about what step I should take when I realized something. I was being on scholarship paid to be in choir. I was sitting the bench in basketball as a walk-on. I had no chance that I was going to be playing in the games, right? There were point guards ahead of me, multiple point guards ahead of me on the bench, on the depth chart. And so I was never going to play. I was going to sit the bench and clap for everybody, cheer, right? But in choir, I was on scholarship to sing. And so it was easy to go, hey, coach, I can't do this because this guy is paying for me to be here. My obligations are with the one who paid for me to come. Now, if you want to give me a couple of thousand dollars, I will gladly be at practice, right? But if you're not going to do that, then I'm obligated to this, and the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. When we come into a relationship with Christ, we go, why do I want to walk away from sin and away from these sinful things in order to walk with Christ and have a relationship with him? Because I've been purchased by Jesus. That I've been taken out of that kingdom and bought at a price to come into this kingdom. So I can say no to that. 
and with complete freedom say yes to Jesus. And the Spirit of God empowers me to make that step. Now, here's the final thing that I want us to notice this morning as we talk about our place in God's family. There's a family business that we're meant to be part of. Right, so when we come out of this kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and we talk about these due roles that we take and we, we separate ourselves out of that, he goes, there's also a family business that I'm inviting you into. So if you're my heir and if I'm giving you everything, I think you should know how to work in the family business. This is what we're about in this kingdom. This is who we're, what we're doing. Uh, and so here's what we find in verse 16, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So the Greek word for sufferings is where we get our English word to sympathize or sympathetic, right? And it conveys this idea that we experience pain jointly. And so when we think about Jesus and we go, when we suffer with him, very few of us, particularly in the United States, will probably ever give our lives in suffering and die at the hands of someone else to follow Jesus. That does happen in other parts of the world, and I'm not saying it couldn't happen here, but it's very unlikely that you're going to face a point where you go, I'm going to give up my life and die for my faith in Jesus. And what if I don't suffer? Like, are many of you suffering as a result of following Jesus? Probably not, at least not in the way maybe we think about the New Testament and the disciples and those kinds of things. So we go, so then if I'm not suffering, does that mean I'm not a follower of Jesus? And when Paul says, hey, if you're going to suffer, share in his suffering so that you may also share in his glory, well, what if I'm not experiencing that? I don't think it, what Paul is talking about is that we have to suffer to a point of death. Here's what I think Paul's getting around to. What did Jesus suffer doing throughout his ministry? What was the passion that he had? Typically, when we talk about Jesus' passion, we talk about Passion Week, we talk about Holy Week, we talk about his death on the cross. That's what's mentioned as Jesus' passion. But when it comes to this, Jesus didn't just have passion and didn't just suffer on the cross. His entire ministry life was filled with suffering. And the thing that Jesus did, that he suffered to do, that he gave passion to do all through his life and ministry was to make disciples. And then he invites us in to do that same thing. So here's what I want you to see that Jesus did when it came to making disciples and his own suffering, the things that he faced. He faced rejection from people. He lost family relationships. He was ridiculed and mocked. He found himself isolated and lonely. He was drained as he poured himself out mentally, physically, emotionally. Like there's all these different things. Even the writers in the Old Testament pointing toward the Messiah. Isaiah would say, hey, he's a man of great sorrow. And he's someone who was despised and rejected by people. And then when Jesus shows up, as he invests his life to make disciples, and as he pours out in ministry, he's continually suffering for that. He's being rejected. He's being pursued by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's constantly having these issues that he's dealing with. His family rejects him. He's sleeping outdoors. He's away from society. He, he's just got all kinds of different things. And so when you think about your life, as we make disciples, it's possible that you won't face a violent death, but you might lose family or friends. You may be mocked at your workplace for your stance for Jesus. It's very possible that you'll face rejection. You may be asked by God and the Spirit of God will prompt you to give up your own free time to do fun things in order to go and work for kingdom-related things. And to say, hey, what does it look like for you to, to not do something that's fun that you want to do, but to follow my lead and come over here and do some kingdom work? 
And so there's all these different changes that take place when we exit one kingdom to move into another, when we exit one family to join the other, that we're obligated now to the ways of Christ and his kingdom. And so as we see this play out for us, it's good to understand, and here's where I want us to close this morning, that the last hours of Jesus' life he spent with his disciples, and he told them, he said, listen, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. A servant doesn't know his master's business. But everything that the Father has made known to me, I've made known to you. And when I go away, I'm going to send the Spirit. And he's going to remind you of everything that I've instructed you so that you can carry on in this business of going to the world and making disciples. It's what we're called to do as we come into God's family and into his work. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is to be with us as we make disciples. He instructs us in what to do and what to say. So if you're part of the family, you're in the family business. As followers of Jesus, the church becomes your primary family. That you go, hey, if I'm rejected by everyone else, I'm still in the family of God. I still have my brothers and sisters. I still have my Father in heaven. I still have brother Jesus who is with me. That I have a new family. And so this week I found a quote um, that I've heard a lot, but I had never seen the full quote before. Maybe you've heard it before as well. The quote that we use, the, the phrase that we use is, blood is thicker than water. You've heard that? Did you know that there's more to that than just blood is thicker than water? Here's the full quote. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Isn't that interesting? Then we go, when I choose something and I enter into covenant with it, that becomes a thicker stance for me and a place for me to stake my life than even the blood of the, or the water of the womb, even the family that I came into and was birthed into. When I agree to walk into covenant relationship with God, he becomes my primary family. And the church becomes the place that I have family relationship. And so for us this morning, as we close this out, I want us to understand that your relationship with the Holy Spirit helps you fulfill this final command of Jesus, go and make disciples. That we're called to make disciples of Jesus. And the Spirit of God who has tutored us in that and teaches us in that and helps us to say no to things that draw us away from that mission to keep us on mission with the family. He goes, this is where I want you to spend your life. And I'm going to help you to do that and walk in step. So that's our call this morning. We're going to sing one last song together. I'm going to ask Ellie to go ahead and come back up. We're going to sing one last song together. And and as we do, I just want to ask you to reflect for your own life. And where do you find yourself right now? Is Jesus king in your life? Have you made that transition out of sin and the struggle of of the kingdom of Satan and the realm of the flesh to enter into the kingdom of Christ and into his freedom? Or would you say you constantly find yourself rejecting God to say yes to sin? Today, the Spirit of God, as you understand him more and walk in relationship with him more, wants to help you take next steps forward. If you're in Christ, you're a child of Christ. Your spirit testifies with his spirit that you're in his family. And then his spirit gives you the power to say no to the things that don't belong in your life because of God's salvation and his grace to you so that you can say yes to the fullness of walking in his kingdom and in his ways. 
Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.